As we consider God's word this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 3, which the superscription tells us was written when David fled from Absalom. So his background, we'll read first from 2 Samuel chapter 15. We'll read beginning at verse 13, and then we'll read a couple of selections from chapters 15, 16, and 17, which is the, the narrative background of this psalm that David writes. 2 Samuel chapter 15, read first at verses 13 and 14. where it says that a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then down at verse 30, it says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. He had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And up in chapter 16, beginning in verse 5, it says, Now, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. And he came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. 
Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. So they refreshed themselves there. And then down to verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Hithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return, except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. The Lord does, after this, answer David's prayer and turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness by raising up Hushai, David's faithful follower, to give bad advice to Absalom, which he follows. Hushai then uh, warns David to escape, which he does, and David's life is spared. That's the context in which Psalm 3 is written, in the middle of, of this whole affair while the king is in exile. And so now we read Psalm 3, which the Spirit-inspired superscription tells us is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, There is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice. He heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Congregation, I've titled this sermon, The King in Exile, as it's composed while David is on the run, fleeing for his life. Not only has his own son turned against him, As we just read, we we see also his faithful friend and advisor, Ahithophel, betraying him. 
We see Shimei cursing him and and throwing stones at him. And and we see 12,000 men who apparently are willing to chase down their weak and weary king in the dark of night to kill him. This is the context of Psalm 3. We've just entered in through those glorious double doors of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that that entryway into the sanctuary of the Psalter where we see that God will raise up his anointed king. And already the people are plotting against him. We see here the conflict of which Psalm 2 warned right at the outset, where in his lust for the crown, David's own son Absalom joins the ranks of those in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, in their plot to overthrow God's chosen king. The second psalm that we looked at last night predicts that rulers and nations will rise against God's anointed. And Psalm 3 begins to chronicle just what God's anointed will experience is betrayed by those closest to him. The king is in exile. And and David's experiences throughout the Psalms foreshadow that great king of Psalm 2, that one from his own line, so that what happens to David begins to, to set a pattern for what we might expect of God's son and God's king. That he too will suffer that he too will be betrayed by those closest to him. But he also will be delivered by God to whom salvation belongs so that blessing might be upon his people. We see the shadow of Christ in the book of the Psalms and it's beginning to emerge already in Psalm 3. Where we see four things in this little psalm. We see in verses 1 and 2 the pressures of the king against whom many have risen up. See in verses 3 and 4, the promise given to the king that God will be to him a shield and the lifter of his head. Verses 5 and 6, we see the posture of the king or the the peacefulness of the king who lies down and sleeps. And in verses 7 and 8, we see the prayer of the king. His petition that God will strike the head of his enemies so that blessing will be not only upon him, but upon all his people. Look at me first at the pressures of the king. He says that many have increased who trouble him. Uh, Many are those who rise up against him. And many are those who say of him, there is no help for him in God. Here he's describing the exact situation that we just read of in 2 Samuel, where his own son Absalom uh, conspired to steal the hearts of Israel and proclaimed himself king. That's what happened just before where we started reading. As he has, has stolen the hearts of Israel and proclaimed himself king, David is then forced to flee the city. Or as he's fleeing, he learns that his own trusted friend Ahithophel has joined the conspiracy, has turned against him and joined his son. And so then David flees barefoot, weeping, his head covered in shame with people like Shimei cursing him and throwing stones at him. Saying really the very same thing that we read in Psalm 3, that there is no help for him in God, but this is God's just recompense for what you did to Saul. 
That's what Shimei is saying. And apparently, as, as we read in Psalm 3, or as we gather from Psalm 3, that is, is representative of what many are saying about David. So the king here is suffering immense pressure. The pain of betrayal by his own son, by his longtime friend and counselor. He's suffering the pressure of rebellion. He's, he's suffering shame. He's, he's fearful as his life is in danger. People are mocking him and saying that God has forsaken him. This is the context in which David writes Psalm 3. As you can see how it connects with Psalm 2, it's, it's illustrating for us the precise nature of those vain plots of the one who opposed God's king. David, in his suffering at the hands of his enemies, pictures what God's son and God's king will endure. He'll be betrayed by his own family, by his own trusted friend, Judas, like Ahithophel. In fact, uh, Matthew chapters 26 and 27 make quite explicit this, this comparison between the two of them. Jesus, too, will be forced outside the city, his head hanging in shame as he appears to be under God's curse, and, and people say that there is no salvation for him and God as they, they taunt him while he hangs on the cross. Many will rise up against him. Psalm 3 is, is picturing what will happen to the king of Psalm 2. It's establishing for us a pattern where the pressures of Jesus the king are being foreshadowed and the pressures of David the king. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, what happens to David happens to him for the sake of the one who is in him and who is said to proceed from him, namely Jesus, whose life in many ways will be patterned after David's as Matthew's gospel goes to great lengths to show and who therefore in the psalms that he utters out of those experiences also prophesies of what will happen to his son. Acts chapter 2 calls David a prophet. The gospels do the same thing. when They'll, they'll quote uh, one of the psalms, say Psalm 22, as Jesus is being crucified, and say this occurred in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet. And then it will quote a Davidic psalm. And so Peter says in his, his sermon on the day of Pentecost that, that David was a prophet. That in the Psalms that he wrote, he was speaking beyond himself to the one who would come from him. The New Testament never tires of applying the Psalms of David to specific events in the life of Jesus. And in fact, one uh, Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, estimates that some 40% of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are from the book of the Psalms, and most of them are applied directly to events in Jesus' life. We saw one of those a week ago on Christmas from Psalm 40. And so the things that are happening to David are, are happening to him for the sake of the one who is in him. And as a spirit-inspired prophet, the prayers that he prays in response to those events are, are not just spoken by him, but by the spirit of Christ in him. Bonhoeffer said the prayers of David were prayed also by Christ. Or, or better, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner David. Church Father Tertullian said, David sings to us of Christ, and through his voice, Christ sings concerning himself. 
or Spurgeon, uh, points out that the exact circumstances of David in 2 Samuel 15 through 17 are repeated by Jesus on the night of his betrayal where, where he too passes over the brook Kidron when his own people are in rebellion against him. With a feeble band of followers, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. He calls David a type of Christ. It says Psalm 3 is typological in the same way. The pressures of God's anointed king are teaching us about God's own son. The events of David's life in 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17, and, and this poetic statement of the way that God delivers him in Psalm 3 typologically foreshadow the king of Psalms 1 and 2. That's how James Hamilton puts it. And it's important that we don't, um, it's important that we understand this and don't miss this, so that we don't end up misapplying Psalm 3 and reading ourselves into it too quickly. See, it's ultimately about God's king, who many have risen up against in a satanic rebellion, who nevertheless, as we'll see in, in verses 3 and 4, trust that God will deliver him because of the specific covenant promises that he made. And to trust that through God's deliverance of him, all God's people will be blessed. This psalm is first of all about David, who typifies the greater David. And it's only as we understand how it applies to him that we're able to rightly apply it to ourselves. And we'll get to that, but not until we've, we've first walked through the rest of this psalm. Where the king cries out to God, even though the people have declared that God is against him, and teaches us by his example that though the whole world may seek to drive us to despair, though they may taunt us and ridicule us and mock us and slander us, we must not listen, but instead must give ourselves to prayer. Calvin said, as the ungodly use their endeavors to destroy our souls, we must defend our souls by going to God in prayer. That's what David does. That's what Christ does. In verses 3 and 4, we see David um, rehearsing the promise that God has made to him as king. In many ways, what, what he's doing here is he is praying God's promises back to him. That's part of what we do as we come to God in prayer. We are praying his promises back to him. We're pleading his promises. That's what David is doing here, where even though his head hung low, as we read in in 2 Samuel 15.30, his head was covered as he, he wept in shame. Even though his head hung low, he looks forward to the day when God will lift his head. And he says, Lord, you are a shield for me. You are my glory. And you are the one who lifts up my head. You will hear me from your holy hill. It's a reference back to Psalm 2 and the promise that God has made. And so David is reminding himself and reminding God of the Davidic covenant where God promised to set him on the throne and and keep him on the throne until a son from his line would reign forever. This language of God being his glory and, and lifting up his head speaks of royal power being restored to him. Even the name Lord or Yahweh by which he addresses God is God's covenant name. 
He is reminding himself and reminding God of the covenant by which God has bound himself to David. It is therefore confident that God will hear him from his holy hill and will lift up the king's head. In the midst of the pressures of the king, it is God's promise to the king that gives him hope that God will be to him a shield. And the raging and the plotting of the nations, even those in his own nation, even those in his own family, will be in vain. This is God's promise. And God's promise to the king then leads in verses 5 and 6 to that peaceful posture of the king who is able to lie down and sleep. Robert Godfrey calls this the the poetic center of the psalm directly at, at the middle where David confesses his confidence in God even while sleeping. Even in a time of weakness and danger. Remember how Saul was nearly killed in his sleep. But David is confident. He's confident because of the covenant promises that God has made to him. Because the one who made those promises neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's what we confess in Psalm 121. And so David goes to sleep. He recognizes, Psalm 127, that it's vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And so in the midst of this plot against his life, in the midst of of this betrayal by his friend and his son and his people, in the midst of of the onlookers taunting him and saying untrue things about him, in the midst of gossip and slander and ceaseless opposition, David sleeps because he trusts God's promise and believes that when he lies down, he will rise up again for the Lord will sustain him. And he need not be afraid even though tens of thousands oppose him. I think we can learn something here about the sleep that we often lose because we fail to trust God's promise. We are to commit ourselves to him and believe that he has done or will do what he said he will and then rest. That's what David does in 2 Samuel 16 and 17. He lies down and he spends the night trusting. He spends the night Uh, resting literally but also metaphorically in the promises of God. Christopher Ashe says he appropriates subjectively the objective truth of God's covenant promise. In other words, he he takes the promise that God has made and, and he makes it his own. He appropriates it subjectively to himself. It is not some obscure and far off and merely intellectual thing to him, but it's that which allows him to sleep. When even though he is still at this moment greatly outnumbered and his life is in danger, David believes that God will do what he said he will. This very same kind of trust will be repeated in the life of David's son, who, who, when surrounded by great pressures, will claim his father's promise and rest in trust. As we come to the pages of the New Testament and we watch him sleeping on a pillow in the bottom of a boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm, we see him sleeping night after night despite the many who are seeking his life. And finally... 
We see him hand himself over to his enemies to sleep the sleep of death, confident that God will awaken him on that Easter morn. David is showing us what it will look like for the king to trust his father. And then finally in verses 7 and 8, we see the prayer of the king. In one sense, this whole psalm is, is a prayer, but it's, it's in these last couple of verses especially that we see the king's specific petition where, where he asks God now to do something. And what he asks God to do is to arise and save him by striking his enemies on the cheek and breaking the teeth of the ungodly. This is the first of many imprecatory statements in the Psalter where the psalmist asks God to bring salvation through judgment by removing those who afflict him. I've pointed out to you before how these prayers for judgment are ultimately rooted in God's Genesis 3 promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and his seed. That's why these sorts of statements in the Psalms like Psalm 58 or, or Psalm 140, you have allusions to snakes, to venom, and to serpents. Or in Psalms like 137, you have heads being crushed. These are, are allusions back to Genesis 3.15. We see this same dynamic here where the precise judgment that is requested by David is a head wound. Strike them on the cheek and break their teeth. While the dashing language that we saw last night in Psalm 2.9 very subtly alludes to Genesis 3 here, the connection is even clearer. It's through the heads of the enemies of God's anointed king being struck that God will bring salvation. Do you hear the echo of that first gospel promise? Can you see how this helps us to read this passage in light of Christ and the the cosmic conflict between the serpent and the sun? This is how all the the imprecatory psalms are to be understood, all the the psalms of of justice asking for vengeance. They're to be understood as, as part of this cosmic conflict going all the way back to the garden, Satan's war on God's son, where he enlists men like Absalom, and Ahithophel and his service. And God's people rightly recognize that the triumph of God's kingdom, the victory of God's king, means those enemies must be removed. And so David prays for God to do just that. Notice he doesn't seek to do it himself. In fact, that, that's exactly what we read in 2 Samuel 16. But he entrusts his cause to God. And so do many, many more times throughout the Psalms. Some Christians have a problem with, with these kinds of prayers, but as we read them in the light of the battle in which we are engaged, they make sense. For the kingdom of David's son to advance, his enemies must be defeated. And so Christ prays through his father David, strike them on the cheek and break their teeth so that their deadly grip might be loosed and I might be able to say salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice that it is the glory of God that motivates his prayer. Not personal vengeance, 
but the glory of God and the good of his kingdom, which extends in verse 8 to all of its subjects. This, I think, is the most beautiful part of this psalm where, where we see that this personal battle in which the king is engaged has implications for all his people. For those who have not sided with the seed of the serpent, but who continue to be loyal to the king. David says, my salvation equals their blessing. You see that in in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here he's speaking of the deliverance that God will bring to him. But that deliverance that he is longing for is deliverance for him as king. And so his salvation means blessing on all God's people. This introduces something of a theme throughout the Psalter, where as it fares with the messianic king, so it fares with each member of the messianic kingdom. The life of the king is inseparably uh, tied to the well-being of his people. And we see this time and time again. And as I've been reading through the Psalms myself, I think we we see it especially in the Psalms of Lament and, and, and especially in the imprecatory Psalms, where the king's cry is not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of his people. Look at a psalm like Psalm 69. Let not those who, who wait for you be ashamed because of me, he says, but, but the humble shall see my deliverance and be glad. Those who seek God, their hearts shall live. Psalm 69 is one of the, the saddest songs where we see in it the, the emotional life of our Lord Jesus as he hangs on the cross and is mocked and beaten. And yet even in the midst of that, he is praying for his people. Even as he prays in in the the verses 22 through 28 of that psalm for the the judgment that God will bring on his enemies, he is praying that not out of of, of some uh, sense of, 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 of vengeance or a personal vendetta, but he is seeking it for the good of his people. A psalm like Psalm 35, where the same dynamic is at play, another one of these, these psalms of judgment, but he says in it, let your people, Lord, be glad and shout for joy when they see how you have saved me by fighting my enemies. And so in many other psalms like those, and in this psalm here, we, we see that, it, that it, this is about uh, so much more than just you or me. That as we take these psalms and and pray them ourselves, it's not just that we're praying uh, for for deliverance ourselves or for our enemies to be crushed, but but this psalm is about Christ. And it's in him, verse 8, that we find our blessing. Christopher Ashe says verse 8 is the key to understanding where you and I come into the story. Verse 8 is not some some arbitrary add-on where he tacks on a prayer at the end for the blessing of God's people as as if to to say, oh, oh, and I forgot, also please uh, bless your church. The way that we might sometimes uh, throw on something like that at the end of our prayer. But the king is given victory and the result is blessing for his people. When the king is defeated, his loyal people share in his grief and curse and shame. But when the king is delivered, his people experience the blessings that overflow from his triumph. This whole psalm is about a conflict between two kingdoms. That it's by our union with the true king that we are brought into this psalm. Though nations and tens of thousands may not rise against us, 
they do against Christ. And insofar as we are united to him, we share in his suffering. His pressures overflow to us. That's how verses 1 and 2 relate to us. In fact, we heard about that a little bit last night, how the the suffering of the king causes his kingdom, his church, to take on a a suffering nature. Verses 3 and 4. Though God has not made to us these specific promises that he has to David or to Christ concerning his kingdom, now he'll lift up our head and exalt us and make us reign. Because we're united to the son of David, though, those promises concerning his kingdom do affect us. They cause us even to share in his glory. That even as we share in the suffering of the king, even as we share in the overflow of the pressures of the king in verses 1 and 2, we also will share in the glory of the king. That's Romans 8 or Philippians 3. And so because we have that firm confidence, we we are able, verses 5 and 6, to enjoy the quiet peace and assurance of Christ himself even as we share in his suffering, knowing that God's promises are sure. And that in him we will inherit the final victory, that through him we are blessed and can therefore subjectively appropriate God's objective covenant promises and sleep. That's how Psalm 3 applies to you and applies to me. It speaks of of the suffering, but also glory of God's messianic king and the blessing of his people that is tied up in him. It assures us, Calvin says, that the church will always be delivered from the calamities that befall her because God, who is able to save her, will never withdraw his grace and blessing from her because he will never withdraw his grace and blessing from his son. This is a psalm that gives us assurance as we enter into a new year where tens of thousands continue to make war on Christ's church. It gives us assurance that his kingdom shall prevail and God will crush the head of the serpent's seed. And so just like last night, this psalm teaches us how to pray thy kingdom come. It teaches us how to pray it with assurance so that we don't lose sleep by our anxious toil, but trust that God will do what he said he will. Matthew 16, 18, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we pray to that end. We pray like our shepherd king, not with a a narcissistic concern for self, but a concern for the whole church of God. Even in our our personal distress and anxiety, as, as we experience in some measure the overflow of the suffering of our king, we pray not with a selfish concern for me, myself, and I, but we learn from Christ who teaches us here to pray with a focus on the well-being of all God's people. And to pray that he will care for us, not just for our sake, but for theirs and for his glory. We need to let the Psalms teach us how to pray. We need to see the Christ who is revealed so beautifully in them. Whose shepherd heart, verse 8, is here revealed in his concern for the welfare of his people. 
whose justice is seen in his prayer in verse 7, whose childlike trust in his father is seen in in verses 5 and 6, his covenant blessings of which we are heirs in verses 3 and 4, even his suffering for our sake in verses 1 and 2, willingly going into exile for us. Do you see the beauty of our king in Psalm 3? Do you see what God, he reveals to us about the one to come through the prayer of David in Psalm 3? You see how because of what God, he reveals about his son, we can trust and we can pray in peace with God's blessing upon us for the sake of his son. And it can enter into a new year knowing that God will sustain us, verse 5, for Christ's sake. May each one of us subjectively appropriate that objective truth in 2023, even as we may share in the overflow of the suffering of our King. May the Lord sustain us and give us peace because of the blessing that is ours for Christ's sake. Amen. Father, the people in 2 Samuel and in Psalm 3, as they mocked and rejected their king, they did not believe that you would save him. But you did. Nor many years later did they believe that you would save your son as he hung on the cross outside of the city in exile, but again, you did. Though his head was bowed low and the shame of the cross, you lifted it up. We can know that even though we share in some measure of the sufferings of our king, even though we are a church in exile, as it says in 1 Peter 1, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the members of his kingdom. And so we have precious promises that we look forward to of glory and salvation, of of reigning with our King. Lord, we pray that you would give us peace in this next year as we share in the sufferings of our King. We don't know what may come for each one of us and to what extent you, you may call us to share in the sufferings of Christ. But we pray that you would give us peace In 2023, as we share in the sufferings of our King, to believe that you will never withdraw your grace and blessing from your people. May your kingdom come, and may every enemy of your kingdom be either converted or conquered. We pray in Jesus' name.